This is The Celluloid Ceiling, a podcast about women in film, starting from the early days of Hollywood all the way up to modern cinema. Take a journey with me, your host, Becca, as I explore all the different facets of filmmaking and all the amazing women making these films. Alrighty, welcome back to The Celluloid Ceiling, a podcast about women in film, and Happy New Year! I know that I released another episode already, and it's probably like mid-January now at this point, but I'm recording this. I'm recording all of this still in 2020, so hopefully uh, we can exist past 2020. We won't have any, you know, sort of fun surprises at the end of the year, like the aliens coming down and being like, what's up? We waited in from April. Anyway, <laughs> so last week I did something a little bit different and I did the Black Filmmakers episode just because I wanted to make sure that I was making sure that I, you know, included people of color specifically black women because they are often left out of the narrative and there happened to be uh, more that I could have done research on. So that's my bad. And I did try finding more <laughs> uh, women of color in this episode as well. But um, I keep saying this, but it's a lot of television or it is a lot of actresses too is what I've also noticed. It's a lot of actresses who become Oh, sorry, this is the producer's episode. <laughs> so uh, there's a lot of actresses who also become producers. That's not unheard of. There's a lot of actors and actresses that do producing as well, or turn to directing, things like that. So we're going to be doing a little bit of a change up in terms of structure for these uh, next two, possibly last two of this season episodes. Um, and maybe the rest of the podcast as well. I don't know. It was hard to separate director, producer, and the early days of film. And it's even harder to find women producers in the golden age of Hollywood just because, like I said, they were all sort of kicked out. Uh, when it became a big business, men were interested. So I'm going to be doing one big episode for the producers and cinematographers. Uh, as stated in a lot of this podcast, in the early days of filming, everyone had their hands in everything. So it's not something new here to see a lot of these women who were producers, but they also dabbled in directing and acting and screenwriting. In fact, Several of the women I already covered would be considered producers uh, already, and I'll talk just briefly about one of them. And then, um, I'm not going to go into it because we've already talked about her a lot, I'll just mention her. Uh, once film became a big business, as I said, um, that could make money with the invention of the talkies, women were quickly pushed out from roles behind the camera. A study done by Northwestern shows that women in roles like director, producer, and cinematographer have been significantly lower than men from 1910 to 2010. I would say now that there's a bigger jump in the last few years of women producers, which is such a great thing, uh, especially like there's a couple names on here who maybe, I mean, I assume people who listen to this podcast like movies and like film. So you've probably heard of some, some of them uh, because they've, especially Kathleen Kennedy. When I talk about Kathleen Kennedy, we all, everybody knows about her because everybody yells at her for rooting Star Wars. <laughs> It wasn't her though, guys. It wasn't her. So stop blaming her. Okie dokie. Let's get into it. So as I mentioned, Alice Guy Blanche, who we discussed in the early directors episode, is also thought to be the first female producer as well. So I just wanted to bring her back in here so that everybody remembered that you, I guess you wore many hats back in the days of early filmmaking. So the first person we're actually going to talk about is Dorothy Davenport. Dorothy Davenport was born in Boston, Massachusetts on March 13th, 1895. And Davenport's father, Harry Davenport, was a Broadway star and comedian, and her mother, Alice Davenport, was a film actress who appeared in at least 140 films. Dorothy's grandparents were 19th century character actors, Edward Loomis Davenport, a successful 
tragedian stage actor, and Fanny Vining Davenport, who began acting at the age of three. Their daughter and Dorothy's aunt, Fanny Davenport, was considered one of the great stage actresses of the time. So it's a family business, clearly. (laughs) Davenport's first professional role was in a stock company at the age of six. And at the age of 14, she continued in the entertainment industry, doing a type of burlesque. Davenport attended school in Brooklyn and Roanoke, Virginia. At the age of 16, after performing vaudeville for a year and a half, she moved from Boston to Southern California to pursue acting. She began her career with the Nestor Film Company, later acquired by Universal Pictures. Her first known appearance in film was in Life Cycle in a supporting role. She was a talented horsewoman and did many of her own stunts in films. While with Nestor, Davenport met a young actor named Wallace Reed on the set of a film, called on to act with him in a film she was frustrated by his apparent lack of acting ability on the first day, but was smitten with him on the third day of working together. (laughs) So he can't act, but she likes him. (laughs) Both were prominent within Nestor during the early years of the company, and although Wallace Reed had left to pursue another film for six months, he promptly returned to Nestor and the pair married in October 1913. The following year, they worked on over a hundred films together. It's just insane to think about how many films were made back in the silent film era days. It's just like Hallmark does now. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Me, because you know Hallmark pushes out so many movies. Um, They're a powerhouse, man. After this year, the pair left Universal to work on other films, but returned in 1916. On June 18, 1917, Davenport gave birth to her first son, Wallace Reed Jr., in L.A., The birth of her son caused Davenport to take a step back from her career and become a full-time mother. In 1920, Davenport and Reed adopted their second child, daughter Betty Ann Reed. While filming in location in Oregon for the Valley of the Giants in 1919, Wallace Reed was injured in a train wreck. And as a remedy for the pain from this injury, studio doctors administered large doses of morphine to Reed, to which he became addicted. Reed's health slowly grew worse over the next few years, and he died of the addiction in 1923. After Reed's death, Davenport and Thomas Eintz co-produced the film Human Wreckage in 1923 with James Kirkwood Sr., Bessie Love, and Lucille Rickinson, a film that dealt with the dangers of narcotics addiction. It was developed and marketed with an expert assistance from members of the Los Angeles Anti-Narcotics League. Davenport took Human Wreckage on a roadshow engagement with personal appearances, followed up by another social conscience picture, about excessive mother love called Broken Laws. I'm sorry, I shouldn't laugh. Um, in 1924, again billed as Miss Wallace Reed. Davenport then produced The Red Kimono in 1925 about white slavery. Both Human Wreckage and The Red Kimono were banned in the United Kingdom by the British Board of Film Censors in 1926. Kimono is based on a real case of prostitution that took place in New Orleans in 1917. Billing it as a true story, Davenport used the real name of the woman played by Priscilla Bonner, who as a consequence sued Davenport in one landmark privacy case. That's why you got to make sure you do your due diligence in getting the rights. That's a very important thing to do. This is the, the olden days, I guess. She later continued in the social consciousness line with films Linda in 1929, Sucker Monkey in 1933, Road to Ruin in 1934, and The Woman Condemned in 1934, and worked as a producer, writer, and dialogue director. Among her last credits is the co-author for the screenplay Footsteps in the Fog in 1955, and is the dialogue director for The First Traveling Sales Lady in 1956, with Ginger Rogers. 
In the 1970s, near the end of her life, Dorothy still had a print of her husband's 1921 feature, Forever. She gave the print to an organization planning a museum. The museum plans fell through, and Dorothy's last remaining print of her favorite movie of Wally's was lost. Well, that's so terrible. On October 12, 1977, Davenport died at the Motion Picture and Television Country House and Hospital in Woodland Hills, California, at the age of 82. And she is currently interred with her husband at Forest Lawn Memorial Park in Glendale. Fun fact, I actually went to that cemetery. It is freaking huge, uh, first of all. And everybody is, like, buried on a hill, I swear. Like, I went to go see Edith Head and I had to climb up a hill. Maybe I'm weird if I go to graveyards. Whatever, it's fine. (laughs) Just as a side note, there are also going to be some women on here that have very little about them. Um, Just par for the course. (laughs) Up next is Alison Abate. Born July 23rd, 1965, she's an American film producer and animator, primarily for animated films. In 2000, she won the BAFTA for her work on The Iron Giant, and in 2006, she was nominated for a Motion Picture Producer of the Year Award by the Producers Guild of America for her work on Tim Burton's Corpse Bride. She also has worked on Space Jam, Fantastic Mr. Fox, The Lego Movie, and more. So yeah, that was just like a little snippet. Like I said, there's going to be several women on here with like snippets. Next is Kathleen Kennedy. Kennedy was born in Berkeley, California, June 5th, 1953. She graduated from the Shasta High School in Redding, California in 1971. And she continued her education at San Diego State University, where she majored in telecommunications and film. In her final year, Kennedy gained employment at the local San Diego TV station KCST, now KNSD, taking on various roles including camera operator, video editor, floor director, and finally as KCST News Production Coordinator. In Los Angeles, Kennedy secured her first film production job working as an assistant to John Milius, who at the time was the executive producer of Spielberg's 1941. During the production of 1941, while working for screenwriter John Milius, Kennedy came to the attention of Steven Spielberg, who hired Kennedy as his assistant. Both Spielberg and Kennedy agree she was a terrible typist who kept on, sorry, who was kept on only because of her good production ideas. Kennedy was credited as an associate to Spielberg on Raiders of the Lost Ark in 1981, and then an associate producer for Spielberg's production of Toby Hooper's Poltergeist. She began receiving producer credit with Spielberg on major box office hit E.T. The Extraterrestrial in 1982 and she continued serving the role on most of his films for the next three decades. In 1981, she helped co-fund and run the production company Amblin Entertainment with Spielberg and her future husband, Frank Marshall. Also another side note, I've been to the Amblin Entertainment office. It was very cool. I was not allowed to take pictures, but there was this really cool statue of um, the T-Rex that was from... um, that was to Spielberg from, and I'm blanking on his name, who actually created all of the dinosaurs, but I thought that was really cool. She also produced Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom in 1984, which I do believe is the reason we have a PG-13 rating today, with George Lucas and Frank Marshall, and appeared in the film's opening sequence as a dancer. Following her work on the Indiana Jones films, she rose to become one of Hollywood's leading producers. With Amblin, she produced Back to the Future trilogy, collaborating with such directors as Martin Scorsese, Robert Zemeckis, Barry Levinson, and Clint Eastwood. 
She took over a large portion of running of Amblin and served as its president until 1991, when she and Marshall formed the Kennedy slash Marshall Company with a deal at DreamWorks. She continued her business relationship with Spielberg and became a producer for Jurassic Park in 1993, an executive producer for the historical drama Schindler's List, which is also 1993. During the 1980s and 90s, Kennedy served on the advisory board of the National Student Film Institute and in 1991 was a Grammy Award recipient in recognition for outstanding support for student filmmaking. Kennedy was also an honorary chairperson for the Institute. In 1995, she was awarded the Women in Film Crystal Award for outstanding women who, through their endurance and excellence of their work, have helped to expand the role of women within the entertainment industry. In 2007, she was the first recipient of the Women in Film's Paltrow Mentorship Award for the showing extraordinary commitment to mentoring and supporting the next generation of filmmakers and executives. Kennedy was a producer on Spielberg's films War of the Worlds and Munich, the latter of which earned her an Academy Award nomination. Marshall and Kennedy were producers for the U.S. versions of two Studio Ghibli animated features, Ponyo and The Secret World of Arietti. She also produced Spielberg's Lincoln, which was nominated for seven Golden Globes and 12 Academy Awards. In May 2012, she stepped down from Kennedy slash Marshall, leaving Marshall as the sole principal of their film company. In the following month, Kennedy became co-chair of Lucasfilm Limited alongside George Lucas. When Lucas sold Lucasfilm to Disney, Kennedy was promoted to president. In 2018, Kennedy's contract to remain president of Lucasfilm was extended another three years through 2021. For the 2001-2002 period, she was co-president with Tim Gibbons of the Producers Guild of America. In 2019, she was appointed honorary commander of the Order of the British Empire for services to film production in the United Kingdom. In that same year, it was announced that she would receive the BAFTA Fellowship in 2020. Up next is Dee Dee Gardner. Dee Dee was born October 16, 1967, in Winnetka, Illinois. She's the president of Plan B Entertainment, and she's a two-time Oscar winner for 12 Years a Slave and Moonlight. Her films Selma, The Tree of Life, The Big Short, and Vice were additionally nominated for the Academy Award for Best Picture. She's also produced Eat, Pray, Love, Beautiful Boy, Last Black Man in San Francisco, Ad Astra, and more. In 2012, Gardner and her fellow producers were nominated for the Academy Award for Best Picture, The Tree of Life. In 2014, she won the Academy Award for Best Picture for the movie 12 Years a Slave, alongside her co-producers Brad Pitt and Steve McQueen, Jerry Kleiner, and Anthony Cadegas. In 2015, she was nominated once again for the Academy Award for Best Picture for producing Selma, alongside other producers Oprah Winfrey, Jeremy Kleiner, and Christian Coulson. In 2017, she won her second Academy Award for Best Picture for the movie Moonlight. I apologize if you can hear. I don't know what it is they do upstairs. It sounds like they're constantly running back and forth and building Ikea furniture. I don't know. Dee Dee is the first female producer to win two Academy Awards for Best Picture. Up next is Megan Ellison. Megan was born January 31st, 1986 in Santa Clara County, California. She graduated from Sacred Heart Preparatory in 2004 and attended film school at the University of Southern California for one year. Ellison landed her first film credit in 2005 as a boom operator for the short film When All Else Fails, a thriller written and directed by her brother, David Ellison. Ellison then began to finance low-budget movies such as Waking Madison and Passion Play. The success of the Coen Brothers' True Grit in 2010, on which she worked as an executive producer, brought her attention and credibility and launched her career as a producer. 
Ellison started out in the film business in 2006 when she contacted Catherine Brooks, the writer and director of Loving Annabelle, about investing in the filmmaker's next movie. After that, Ellison received access to much larger sums of money from her father for the production of more movies and partnered with Michael Benaroya to produce and co-finance the thriller Catch 44, starring Bruce Willis and Forrest Whitaker, and John Halcote's Prohibition-era crime drama Lawless. Around that time, she also began to collaborate with the creative artist agency's film finance group, headed by Rogue Sutherland and Mika Green. She has since then founded Annapurina Pictures, a company that plans to take on a so-called Silicon Valley approach to filmmaking by investing in original, daring movies made by prestigious directors and screenwriters. Believing that risk-averse Hollywood studios have largely abandoned sophisticated dramas, period pieces, and auteur cinema. The production company has released Paul Thomas Anderson's The Master, a period drama about a cult that resembles Scientology, starring Joaquin Phoenix and Philip Seymour Hoffman, and Zero Dark Thirty, an action thriller about the killing of Osama bin Laden from writer Mark Bowl and director Catherine Bigelow, who has made the Oscar-winning movie The Hurt Locker. In 2011, Ellison outbid Lionsgate for the rights of the Terminator franchise. And in 2014, Ellison removed Anna Perina Productions from the reboot of the Terminator franchise. Makes sense. In 2014, Ellison became the first woman and the fourth person to receive two Academy Award nominations for Best Picture that same year, which she received for her work on Her and American Hustle. In June 2014, Ellison optioned the screen rights for the memoir A House in the Sky, which tells the story of Amanda Lindhout and her capture by the Somali rebels in 2011. Also in 2014, Ellison was included as a part of the Advocates Annual 40 Under 40 list. Up next is Darla K. Anderson. Born October 22, 1968, she's an American film producer who formerly worked at Pixar Studios. She sits on the National Board of Directors for the Producers Guild of America. She produced the 2010 film Toy Story 3, which was nominated for the 2011 Academy Award for Best Picture and which won the 2011 Academy Award for Best Animated Feature. That was a really good movie. That was my my go-to-college movie. Previously, Anderson won the Golden Satellite Award for A Bug's Life, and a BAFTA Award for A Bug's Life, and Monsters, Inc., and a Producers Guild Award for Cars. In 2008, Guinness Book of World Records lists Anderson as having the highest average movie gross for a producer, $221 million per movie. Holy crap! And in 2011, the Wall Street Journal listed a combined gross for the four movies she's produced of over $2 billion. Anderson was born and raised in Glendale, California. Hey, that's where I'm at now. And she studied environmental design at San Diego State University. Before coming to Pixar in 1993, she worked as an executive producer at Angel Studios. The character Darla in Finding Nemo was created by the director's screenwriter, Andrew Stanton, to get back at her for playing practical jokes on him. Oh my god, that's so funny. Sorry. (laughs) On March... I know I write these things, but I write them like weeks in advance and I forget and I just get uh, I just get happy and excited again to read these things. On March 8th, 2018, it was announced that after nearly 25 years, Anderson left Pixar to pursue other opportunities. And in January 2019, it was reported that Anderson had signed a multi-year development deal with Netflix in which she will develop and produce new animated and live action projects. Anderson is married to Corey Ray, also a Pixar producer who produced Monsters University, and they live together in San Francisco. Up next is Nina Jacobson. 
Born September 15, 1965, she's an American film executive who, until July 2006, was president of the Buena Vista Motion Pictures Group, a subsidiary of the Walt Disney Company. With Dawn Steele, Gail Berman, and Sherry Lansing, she is one of the last of a handful of women to head Hollywood film studios since the 1980s. She established her own production company called Color Force in 2007 and is the producer of the Hunger Games film series. Jacobson was born in Los Angeles to a Jewish family, and in 1987, she graduated from Brown University. She began her career as a documentary researcher. She joined Disney in 1987 as a story analyst, but was dismissed in a management change. In 1995, she and American Beauty producer Bruce Cohen formed Out There, a collection of gay and lesbian entertainment industry activists. In 1988, she joined Silver Pictures as the director of film development. She was later head of development at the McDonald's slash Parks Productions before she joined Universal Pictures as senior vice president of production. There she took part in the development and production of such projects as 12 Monkeys and Dazed and Confused. Later, Jacobson became a senior film executive at DreamWorks SKG, where she was responsible for developing What Lies Beneath. She also takes credit for the idea behind DreamWorks' first animated feature, Ants. In 1998, she moved to Disney, where she was responsible for developing scripts and overseeing film production for Walt Disney Pictures, Touchstone Pictures, and Hollywood Pictures. Among her projects as studio executive were The Sixth Sense, Remember the Titans, Pearl Harbor, The Princess Diaries, The Chronicles of Narnia, and the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise. For her efforts helping expand the role of women in the entertainment industry, Women in Film awarded her the Crystal Award in 2003. In 2005, Forbes magazine named Jacobson one of the world's 100 most powerful women in acknowledgement of her success. She's closely associated with M. Night Shyamalan while they were at Disney together. Um, she worked on The Sixth Sense. She also worked with him on Unbreakable, Signs, and The Village. But she and Shyamalan clashed during the pre-production of his film in 2006, Lady in the Water. Shyamalan left Disney after that uh, because he believed in his eyes that Jacobson and others were overly critical of the script and that uh, the Lady in the Water would eventually be produced by Warner Brothers. Her production company, Color Force, signed a three-year first-look production deal with DreamWorks in December 2006. The first feature product released in theaters was Diary of a Wimpy Kid in 2010. She also produced the 2011 feature, One Day. Jacobson produced all of the films based on the best-selling Hunger Games trilogy by Suzanne Collins and co-wrote the screenplays for the series. In 2015, Color Force mounted its first television series, American Crime Story, The People vs. O.J. Simpson, based on Jeffrey Tobin's 1997 book, The Run of His Life. Color Force produced the film adaptation of Crazy Rich Asians, which was released in 2018 to general acclaim. The Hollywood Reporter presented Jacobson with his third annual Equity and Entertainment Award at its 2018 Women in the Entertainment event on December 5th, 2018. Previous Equity and Entertainment Award winners include Ryan Murphy and Amy Pascal. Jacobson produced the 2019 film adaptation of the best-selling novel Where'd You Go, Bernadette? by Maria Seppel, which according to the critics' consensus of Rotten Tomatoes, offers a dispiriting proof that a talented director, best-selling source material, and terrific cast can add up to far less than a sum of their parts, end quote. Jacobson and her production company, Color Force, also acquired and produced the 2019 adaptation of Dana Tratt's Pulitzer Prize-winning novel, The Goldfinch, which, despite the novel's devoted fan base, was universally panned by critics and was named one of the worst movies of the year by CBS News. 
It lost over $50 million, according to The Hollywood Reporter. Up next is Stephanie Elaine. Stephanie was born in New Orleans on October 30th, 1959. Almost a Halloween baby. (laughs) Her family moved near Los Angeles, California in 1965, and Elaine attended the University of California, Santa Cruz, graduating with a BA in English and Creative Writing. She began her film career in 1985 at Creative Artists Agency, first as a script reader, then a staff reader. As a story analyst, she worked for 20th Century Fox, Warner Brothers, and finally in 1989 at Columbia Pictures. There, Elaine was one of 12 readers in the studio, and one of only two African-American readers. She rose through the ranks to become senior vice president of production, and was influential in encouraging and developing an African-American filmmaking community in Hollywood in the 1990s. During her tenure at Columbia, Elaine launched the careers of several young filmmakers, including John Singleton, Robert Rodriguez, and Darnell Martin. She personally pitched to Columbia's executive Singleton's Boys in the Hood in 1991. The controversial film would be a critical and commercial hit, garnering Singleton two Academy Award nominations. Among the films under her supervision were Poetic Justice in 1993, I Like It Like That in 1994, and The Craft in 1996. God bless her for the craft. I love that movie. In 1996, Elaine left Columbia Pictures to become president of Jim Henson's Pictures. During her four years there, she produced Caroline Thompson's Buddy, as well as Henson brand movies, Muppets from Space, and The Adventures of Elmo in Grouchland. After her stint in Henson, Elaine joined Three Arts Entertainment, where she developed projects for clients and produced Reggae Rock Blythe Woods Biker Boys. In 2003, Elaine sold her house and funded homegrown films. Teaming with John Singleton, Craig Buer's Hustle and Flow was produced. Hustle and Flow was sold to MTV slash Paramount for $9 million and went on to win the Audience Award at Sundance in 2005, an American Award for Best Original Song, and earned Best Actor nomination for Terrence Howard. In 2006, Elaine and Homegrown Films produced another first-time director, music video director, Sana Harem's Something New, starring Sana Lathan and Simon Baker. She also worked again with producer John Singleton, partnering with Craig Brewer, and his Southern Cross the Dog production company based at Paramount Pictures. Paramount Vantage released their latest film, Black Snake Moan, starring Samuel L. Jackson, Christina Ricci, and Justin Timberlake on February 23, 2007. She was the festival director for the LA Film Festival from 2011 to 2016. Up next is Amy Pascal. Pascal was born on March 25, 1958 in Los Angeles, California. She attended Crossroads School in Santa Monica, then worked as a bookkeeper at Crossroads School while getting her international relations degree at UCLA. Pascal started her career as a secretary, working for producer Tony Garrett at the independent production company Kestrel Films. From 1986 to 1987, she served as vice president of production at 20th Century Fox. Pascal joined Columbia Pictures in 1988, where she was responsible for the development of the films including Groundhog Day, which is feels like um, quarantine in 2020, Um, Little Women, Awakenings, and A League of Their Own. She left Columbia in 1994 and served for two years as the president of production for Turner Pictures, while Scott Sassa was president of Turner Entertainment. During her time at Turner, Pascal hired Damon Lee as development director. Pascal rejoined Columbia in 1996 as the studio's president after Turner Pictures merged with Warner Brothers. In 1999, Pascal became chair of Columbia Pictures. Pascal was named co-chairperson of Sony Pictures Entertainment in September 2006. 
She also served as chairman of SPE's Motion Picture Group from December 2003 to February 2015. Pascal and SPE's chairman and CEO, Michael Linton, led all of SPE's lines of business, including motion picture production, acquisition, and distribution, television production, acquisition, and distribution, television networks, digital content creation, and distribution, operation of studio facilities, and the development of new entertainment products, services, and technologies. Pascal has overseen the production and distribution of a number of films, including the Spider-Man franchise and the James Bond films Casino Royale, Quantum of Solace, and Skyfall, the first Bond film to gross over $1 billion at the worldwide box office. The Da Vinci Code, Angels and Demons, Sony Pictures Animation, The Smurfs, Cloudy with the Chains of Meatballs, and Hotel Transylvania, and Best Picture Oscar nominees American Hustle, Captain Phillips, Zero Dark Thirty, Moneyball, and The Social Network. She had her hands in everything. <laughs> Pascal, along with Linton, also oversees Sony Pictures Television, which produces and distributes television programming for multiple platforms, in the U.S. and internationally. In 2013, Pascal was elected to the Board of Governors of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. She clashed with investor Daniel S. Loeb, who accused both Pascal and Linton of poor finance controls. According to the Financial Times, she employed an assistant who earned more than 250000 a year and had use of a private jet and other perks in keeping with Hollywood's golden era rather than the age of austerity. End quote. At the end of 2014, Pascal was the only woman at Sony to earn over $1 million per annum, having earned $3 million a year. Pascal's contract with Sony was scheduled to expire in March 2015. On February 5th, 2015, Pascal announced she would step down in May of 2015. Pascal stated during a Woman of the World discussion on February 11, 2015, she had been fired by Sony. Pascal started her own production company with a four-year contract for funding and distribution via Sony Pictures Entertainment. The company called Pascal Pictures hired Rachel O'Connor as production chief and Ian Dalrymple to open and run the New York branch. Pascal Pictures was expected to continue Amy Pascal's book-friendly focus, and Dalrymple's office was expected to facilitate this. She produced the Ghostbusters reboot film, and the Marvel Studios produced Spider-Man Homecoming, in addition to theater and television work. TriStar president Hannah Minghella obtained rights to Maestra by L.S. Hilton and was intent for Pascal to produce the film. Pascal Pictures made the winning bid for memoir Zoe Quinn about Gamergate, called Crash Override, How to Save the Internet from Itself, which was sold to Touchstone slash Simon & Schuster for publication in 2016. Pascal and Elizabeth Cantillon optioned rights for a TriStar TV series based on the books by Eve Baptist set in the 1960s-70s Los Angeles. For some of the mid-six to seven figures, Pascal made a deal for Michael Dilbert's Athena, about a descendant of the goddess Athena who is recruited to a secret organization. Together with Sony, Pascal obtained rights for the TV crime drama Darktown, which she plans to executive produce with Jamie Foxx. In May 2018, it was announced that Pascal and her production company, Pascal Pictures, is leaving Sony and moving to Universal Pictures for a first-look deal after 30 years with Sony Pictures. In 2001, Pascal was honored with the Women in Film's Crystal Award, which recognizes those whose work has helped expand the role of women in the entertainment industry. Pascal has been included in the Hollywood Reporter's annual Women in Entertainment Power 100 list and Forbes' ranking of the world's 100 most powerful women. As of 2014, she was ranked as the 28th most powerful woman in the world by Forbes, up from 36th in 2013. 
Now, there is a little bit of a controversy that she was a part of, and I do believe it's important to include because I'm not just, I don't think it's right to leave that out. So there was a Sony hack that happened, and during this, they found some emails that were exchanged by Pascal, and news reports branded the exchange as racially insensitive, while others just called it plain racist. Uh, Pascal responded by saying, the content of my emails were insensitive and inappropriate, but are not accurate reflection of who I am. Civil rights leader Al Sharpton suggested the apology was not sufficient and compared her to Donald Sterling and called for more diversity in Sony's hiring pool. A New York Times columnist denounced the media's focus on Pascal's communication and many other emails released by the hack as giving material to aid criminals, quote, quote, um, saying, quote, at least the hackers are doing it for a cause. The press is doing it for a nickel, end quote. In the popular press, coverage of the story was extended with actress and producer Lisa Kudrow suggesting Pascal should have known better, adding, quote, don't write anything you don't want to broadcast, end quote. At the Writers Guild of America Awards in 2014, on January 7, 2015, Kudrow, who was presenter, mentioned the Sony hack again, arguing that it was disturbing because Scott Rudin and Amy Pascal thought that was witty banter. Color of Change, a civil rights organization, launched a petition in December of 2014 calling upon Sony to fire Pascal from her role, arguing Pascal's comments are confirmation of the manipulative, exploitative relationship corporations like Sony have with black folks, end quote. They added, quote, we must hold Pascal accountable here, not just for her horrendous comments, but also for her role at the helm of a corporate agenda that views black America as one big lucrative joke, end quote. In a 2020 interview with Vulture, Fandy Newton accused Pascal of making racially insensitive and demeaning demands from her for the film remake of Charlie's Angels, a film Newton ended up declining to star in due to Pascal's alleged behavior. Pascal responded by stating she was horrified by the story and had no recollection of it. After Pascal left Sony, she was interviewed about Sony Entertainment's gender pay gap that has been exposed by the leaks. Tina Brown asked Pascal to explain why actresses did not realize they were being paid less than male actors. Pascal said, quote, People want to work for less money. I'll pay them less money. I don't call them up and go, Can I give you more? What women have to do is not work for less money. People should know what they're worth and say no, end quote. Women making less than their male counterparts and male co-stars learned of the difference from the hack, such as actress Charlize Theron, who had been able to obtain a deal of more than $10 million in early January 2015 to match the fee of Chris Hemsworth, her male co-star in the Huntsman film production. The difference between what men and women made was pervasive at Sony Pictures under Pascal, with only one female out of the 17 studio executives earning more than $1 million per year according to the unconfirmed emails. And Columbia Picture co-presidents of production Michael DeLuca and Hannah Mingdella serving in identical jobs, but with a million dollar difference in pay. Now onto the next couple few who I unfortunately have a little, very little uh, information about. So next is Emma Thomas, and she's sort of a rule breaker because she was born in London in 1971, and she graduated from the University College London, where she met Christopher Nolan, her future husband. And that's why I put her on here, because she is actually producing all of Nolan's films. So aside from producing films, Thomas worked as a script supervisor throughout the 1990s and was assistant to director Stephen Fryers on High Fidelity in 2000. She's produced all of Nolan's films since 1997, with the exception of the short documentary Quay in 2015. Together they run the production company Syncopy Inc., Syncopy? 
I hate, I have tr- such trouble with words. I should not be having a podcast. Thomas is a member of the Board of Trustees of the Academy Museum of Motion Pictures. Up next is Shannon McIntosh. She's an American film producer and recipient of the Golden Globe Award for Best Motion Picture in a Musical or Comedy for producing Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. She's worked on a number of Tarantino films, such as Grindhouse, Death Proof, Django Unchained, and it's not uncommon for Tarantino to work with women producers and editors, actually. Up next is Emma tillinger Koskoff. Emma was born in 1972 and is the daughter of actors John Tillinger and Dorothy Lehman. Her paternal grandfather was a German Jew, and her younger brother, Sebastian Tillinger, has also been an actor. She started her career at Artist Management Group, where she worked for co-founder Rick Yorn. She worked as an assistant for the actress Uma Thurman and director Phil Jeno. Afterwards, she was an assistant to the late Ted Demi, working on Demi's pictures Blow and A Decade Under the Influence. In January 2003, she joined Martin Scorsese's production company, Sequela Productions. Originally, Tillinger was Scorsese's assistant before she was promoted to production president in 2006. Emma and her fellow producers, Scorsese, Leonardo DiCaprio, and Joey McFarlane, were nominated for the Academy Award for Best Picture for the 2013 film The Wolf of Wall Street. She was featured in The Hollywood Reporter in April 2019, with an article covering much of her work with Scorsese and filming in New York City. She's worked on Hugo, Departed, Uncut Gems, Joker, The Irishman, and more. Sorry if you can hear this music, I'm literally like two people away from the end, and I don't want to stop because I barely get quiet moments in this apartment. (laughs) Up next is Jane Rosenthal. Born September 21st, 1956. In 1989, Rosenthal co-founded the Tribeca Productions Film Studio in the Lower Manhattan neighborhood of Tribeca with actor Robert De Niro. Rosenthal and De Niro co-produced a dramatic television anthology series, Tribeca, in 1993, and in 2002 co-organized the first annual Tribeca Film Festival. She is co-founder and co-chair of the board of the not-for-profit Tribeca Film Institute. Rosenthal is a member of the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences and has been honored by the Museum of the Moving Image, New York University Tisch School of the Arts, the Matrix Award, and the National September 11th Memorial and Museum. In 2011, she was presented with the Jane Jacobs Medal for Lifetime Leadership from the Rockefeller Foundation and the Mont Blanc de la Couture Arts Patronage Award for her commitment to arts and culture. Rosenthal serves on the boards of the National September 11th Memorial and Museum, the Child Mind Institute, Global Citizen, and interactive media company, ECO. She produced Meet the Parents in 2000, Meet the Fockers in 2004, Little Fockers in 2010, About a Boy, Rent, Public Enemies, and more. And last but not least, I'm including this very short one because um, Caroline Aaron is an actress and a producer, and I really wanted to put her in here because she went to American University, uh, which is where I got my master's degree, and she's recently worked on and been in The Marvelous Miss Maisel. So that is it. No surprise, there's once again a lack of women of color on this list, but I really did try this time. Uh, But there are a great deal of black women who are actresses who are also producers, such as Oprah, Regina King, Beyonce, Issa Rae, Ava DuVernay, and more. It doesn't seem like there are a lot of women in color who are only producers. Oh, we did talk about one, though, which I'm so glad that we have. As we get further away from the glamour of Hollywood, you see less and less information about people. 
but that makes sense. Uh, as an editor, you don't really get the same amount of attention as a director or actresses, so I wasn't surprised that I didn't get as much information on these producers. So people below the line, you don't really get as much information on, so that's no surprise. Thanks for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Uh, once again, I apologize if you hear any upstairs noise. Um, my new neighbors don't seem to care about anybody else uh, who lives in here. So that's been real fun to deal with. Um, but thanks for listening. I'm sure we're still in a pandemic in 2021. I don't know. I'm I mean, I know we are. It's not like we're just magically going away. Uh, so continue to wash your hands, stay safe, stay healthy, and tune in next time because we're going to be talking about cinematographers. Uh, thanks for listening again. Bye! This has been The Celluloid Ceiling, a podcast researched, created, and edited by me. Special thanks to my dad, Mark Castaneda, for doing the music.